Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Martha Severins, who for many years was curator at the Greenville County Museum of Art. Before that, she had worked in Charleston at the Gibbs. And she currently is consultant to the Johnson Collection, a private art collection in Spartanburg, South Carolina. We've had Martha on the show many times, usually about something new in the art world related to South Carolina and the American South. And in this case, it's something that really not only took me by surprise, but took my breath away. Scenic impressions, southern interpretations from the Johnson Collection, and it's about impressionism, which we associate with the Gilded Age, particularly in Europe. It's an American story that's never been told, and I thought I had a pretty good liberal arts education at Davidson. I did, took a course in American cultural history. And then we did mention Mary Cassatt uh, as an impressionist, and she was, but she was mostly in Europe, and we're telling the American story. And so, Martha, long introduction, but let's go to the genesis of this collection and really the rethinking of impressionism as a, as a movement in American art. Impressionism was a movement that got started in France, basically. And like so much, this country imported, in terms of the art field, imported Impressionism, beginning in the late 19th century. And it, one of the vehicles of importing Impressionism was that many American artists were studying abroad. Uh, there was a virtual industry in Paris uh, teaching American men and women who aspired to be artists. And so it was only natural that when they returned to their own studios and to their home places that they began to pick up the style that was au courant uh, in France. There are centers of Impressionism, uh, American Impressionism, which actually was not defined uh, until the middle of the 20th century. Um, now, see, that's what I find absolutely incredible. Well, American art history is actually somewhat in its youth, I mean, maybe a hundred years old at best. It was overlooked and neglected and um, put down, uh, basically. Uh, and, and this is fascinating. I think this is part of a whole revival. And of course, it, it happened on a national level and now has trickled down to the South, as you well know. We have been recognizing our own local talent, whether it's the artists in Charleston or um, in Mobile or New Orleans. Um, so this was not exactly the cultural wasteland that uh, it was depicted. As, uh, what was his name, the uh, Sahara of the Beaux-Arts? It, it was not the Sahara of the... <laughs> not by any means. <laughs> so let's define Impressionism. I know a lot of listeners out there might think they know what it is, but what it was academically and then what it was in terms of how it appeared here in the South. Okay. And I'll talk specifically about what the Johnson Collection's point of view is here, too. Uh, Impressionism, as I said, basically a French movement uh, where it was everyday scenes, um, everyday people uh, were getting away from art as a handmaiden to religion, politics, history. You think of those grandiose romantic paintings. And we're moving towards art for art's sake, that it is, uh, in the case of Impressionism, generally pleasing uh, canvases uh, to be enjoyed. Uh, I say canvases. There were, of course, works of art on paper like pastel. And some people wish to extend it to sculpture, but that's kind of a stretch at times. But in any event, um, in this country, the centers of Impressionism tended to be north of New York in Old Lyme. There was a woman by the name of Florence Griswold who had a boarding house where artists who lived during the winter months in New York, they would gravitate, take the railroad, and the railroad's very important in the whole development of Impressionism. they take the, ro the railroad up to her boarding house and spend the summer. Uh, it was very pastoral. They would enjoy painting landscape, and it was also very collegial, um, so that you know, the good old boys had lots of fun together. Mm -hmm. When they were not at Old Lyme, were they, were they scattered? Typically in New York. Um, there were other centers. Um, there were a number of artists painting out of Chicago. They tended to, to move like down to the Ozarks uh, to paint beautiful landscapes. Some of them actually came uh, to western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee to paint the mountains. And 
I think those are, are sort of the two nodes. There, there is a group that one would say California Impressionists, again, attracted by a beautiful landscape. Well, Chicago Art Institute. And then in New York, was it any particular organization? I mean, people like William Merritt Chase sort of had their own studios. Oh, yes. William Merritt Chase is a big figure, and um, he was a very important teacher. He taught uh, primarily at the Art Students League, which was the to-go-to place at this peri- at this time. For a time, he had his own school, which he called the Chase School, and then it morphed into something called the New York School. But in terms of Impressionism, perhaps his greatest contribution was a summer program that he uh, had from about 1891 to 1902, in which the artist would follow him again on the railroad, the Long Island Railroad, to eastern uh, Long Island to an area called Shinnecock Hills, it's near Southampton. And there the students would paint plein air landscapes uh, out of doors. He would come and critique them maybe once or twice a week or do a demonstration. And they would learn from each other as well as from William Mary Chase. And he was a very popular uh, instructor Uh, One of the women, uh, Kate Freeman Clark from Holly Springs, Mississippi, uh, she started out wanting to work in watercolor because she thought it was neater, um, and she was a very genteel, proper uh, young Southern woman. But when she saw William Merritt Chase painting with oil paints in a white flannel suit, she thought that even she could take up oil painting, and (laughs) she did a magnificent job um, doing that. You know, when we talk about everyday life, um, I guess the, the first thing that comes to mind in, in the introduction to the book uh, is Renoir's Luncheon of the Boating Party. Basically, working class French men and women out for the day. Right. It's, a, it's a classic. It's totally a classic. And a lot of the uh, figures there uh, were his friends um, and girlfriends. Uh, so he knew them intimately. So there's a casualness that is captured there. And Again, compare this to the great battle scenes, the historic recreations. But, but I couldn't help but thinking when you were talking about the folks from Chicago going down to the Ozarks or coming east to Asheville, to the, to the mountains. Mm-hmm. How does this differ from the Hudson River School? Well, I, it, it doesn't uh, in terms of logistics. In other words, artists on the move, uh, artists that sought uh, beautiful landscapes. Uh, what shifts is the kind of agenda and the aesthetics. A lot of the Hudson River School paintings have a kind of moralistic kind of overtone. It could be wrapped up in one word, sublime. They're celebrating the whole idea of divine creation. With impressionistic paintings, there's nothing of that sort. Uh, it's It's not about the sublime. The other big difference is that the Hudson River School painters typically are very meticulous in their detail uh, and their rendering. I mean, not absolutely, not photographically so, but but meticulous and, and recognizable. With uh, impressionistic paintings, it's much freer, broader. Details are um, glossed over. Part of that has to do with the surface of the painting. Hudson River School paintings tend to be fairly, uh, fairly flat, whereas the texture of an Impressionist painting is much richer and much more tactile. It, is that because of the layering? The, la- the layering of paint, um, the actual application of the paint, the direction of the brush stroke, uh, palette knife use, all, all sorts of different strategies begin to evolve. Well, and if you look at Renoir, it is a wonderful impression of a casual scene, but then you get to some of the later Impressionists that you have here, some of the Southern you sometimes, this is where this non-art critic looks at it, and I say, there may be an impression of whatever we're looking at, but it's more than just blurred lines, Martha. It's, mm-hmm. it's really kind of foggy. In some instances, yes. And of course, what we have here in the book produced by the Johnson Collection is, I think, um, probably 45 illustrations and by 40 different artists. And so you have individual preferences, you have individual inclinations. So I think you want, like many people, just to tie up Impressionism, you know, in a nice little package and put a bow on it. Um, It's not that simple. Well, 
I learned that from this book. I'm just trying, you know, as an undergraduate 55 years ago <laughs> in uh, an American cultural history class, Impressionism was defined in a very old-fashioned way, and it's, it, it's changed. And, and I'm curious, why did the Johnsons decide to, I mean, they've collected lots of beautiful Southern art. Why did they decide to move in this direction? Well, the Johnson Collection, which uh, was begun about 2001, 2002, and now numbers over 1,100 pieces, aspires to be a comprehensive collection so that uh, it begins with colonial portraiture. And we have talked in the past about uh, the component called Romantic Spirits, which is 19th century paintings. Uh, from the Johnson Collection with those wonderful Civil War narrative history paintings. Again, very detailed and very much art-serving an agenda. Uh, a second uh, initiative was the monographic study of Eugene Thomason, the artist who settled in Nebo, North Carolina, and painted the uh, Scotch-Irish residents and the landscape there. Uh, and this is just chronologically a step after the 19th century paintings. The paintings here in Scenic Impressions date from about 1880 to 1940. So it's a fairly extensive period. Uh, I would say not all of the examples are impressionistic uh, or impre examples of impressionism. They're forerunners. And then the, at the other end, there are artists who are painting more post-impressionistically. So it's a broad segment of the Johnson collection. And what they're doing with their um, collection is they are putting it out there uh, in the form of these beautiful books, but also in terms of exhibitions. And so they have been circulating the companion exhibitions around the South. All right. How long did it take to assemble this collection, and I'm assuming the the artists that are all listed in here, that all of those paintings are in the Johnson Collection. All those paintings uh, are that are listed, that are in the catalog component, belong to the Johnson Collection, in addition to some of the paintings that are illustrating my essay. Well, how did you go about, you're the consultant to the Correct. Johnson Collection. How did, you know, once the idea came about, was this your idea? Was this Actually, no. Um, I uh, am not responsible for the acquisition of the paintings. That is done by the director of the collection, Dave Henderson, uh, who is a very good detective. He's, he's out there uh, looking at uh, auction possibilities, working with dealers on occasion. Uh, he has a very good nose for, for this kind of thing. And uh, the idea of packaging this group of artists uh, actually was something that had evolved over the years, and I came in kind of um, in the second half of the project to pick up some of the pieces. And uh, my responsibilities were largely to uh, research and write on behalf of the catalog entries and bio biographies and an introductory essay. I've also had the pleasure of lecturing to museum audiences and doing docent training in terms of the exhibitions. The art world is something that's a little bit obscure and arcane to those of us who are not involved in it. How do you begin purchasing, you know, that's, you're, you're, again, you're not doing, but you're very familiar with, I'm sure, how mm -hmm. it happens. And, and I know this aspect fascinates you. Uh, as I said, Dave Henderson is a very good detective. He um, is glued to his computer. Uh, he often comes to meetings with his cell phone, and he's put in a bid at an auction. And, and we've also talked in the past, Walter, about how the Internet has transformed the whole process of auction sales in that you can go to an auction site, you can see what's coming up, you can lot, you know, the lot numbers, the reproductions, and that's basically how Dave works. Well, and, and yes, that has changed the whole auction world. The auction world, just talking to friends who are involved in, the, in that, the business has, even in the last year, it has changed dramatically as tastes have, have changed. Those of us who grew up loving 18th century decorative arts, <laughs> um, even South Carolina pieces mm -hmm. are not bringing what they once did. I mean, they're, the, you know, the tastes are, are changed. But I, I just, I really fell in love with this book 
Martha. That's great to hear. That's um, what we want to hear. <laughs> you mentioned it in your introductory essay. Clearly, you you were aware that there were Impressionists in America. And then immediately, you're going to start looking for Southern Impressionists. And the usual places, New Orleans, Savannah, Memphis, Charleston. I was a little bit surprised by places like Birmingham. Now, one thing I'd like to do is define what we, who these artists are. They come from two different groups. Okay. Many are natives of the South, the, you know, born, bred. They may have gone off to school. Uh, and others uh, have come to the South either to settle, like Elizabeth Chant, who settled in Wilmington, North Carolina, and, or, became, and became a force there. Or Alfred Huddy. Or Alfred Huddy, who uh, came to Charleston and was a seasonal uh, resident. Uh, and then there were other artists who were shorter-term visitors. There's that expression, birds of passage. Uh, a number of them, two in particular, Elliot Clark and William Chadwick, went to Savannah uh, as instructors, uh, invited by the Savannah Art Association. Their classes were conducted at the Telfair. This was in the mid-1920s. So they're represented by their Savannah paintings. Uh, not all of the native Southerners are represented by Southern paintings. Uh, one woman, Willie Betty Newman, is represented by a French landscape. So it's a, it's a kind of mix of things. And um, just like Impressionism, we have to be loose with our definitions. Okay. There were some familiar names to me, not as Impressionists. I mean, I, I knew Huddy, obviously. Right. Having spent most of my professional life here in Columbia, I knew about Blondell Malone. A lot of people might not. It wasn't so much as an artist herself. She had a salon, and she was something of an artiste with an E <laughs> on the end. Bohemian. Yes. And so she was known. And then, of course, Alice Ravenel, Hugh G. Smith. I would never have thought of Smith as an Impressionist. Huddy's Oils Perhaps. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. became very clear. But most people think of his etchings and woodcuts. Uh, but one person I didn't see, and since you were, it, the collection was assembled, Anna Hayward Taylor. Well, I think one reason is that I don't think she's very impressionistic. She's much more of a modernist. She okay. is much more of a kind of, uh, if you think of her woodblock prints, the flat areas of color. Mm -hmm. Maybe one can make an argument for her watercolors, but um, eh, and that's not the strength of her her well, work either. I just raised the question because I I seem to recall she did study with with Chase. She did, but that doesn't make her an impressionist. Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, that well, that's part of the story, and I, I think many people who would think of Smith and her low country scenes would think of her as being more of a romantic revival than. Impressionism. Mm -hmm. Well, but but you have to understand and look at the title of this book. It's called Scenic Impressions. Impressionism is is not part of the title. And I don't think of Alice Smith as an impressionist. Never have. And I used to grate when I would read, you know, little blurbs that, that put her in that category. The one thing she did have in common with um, the French impressionist was her study of Japanese prints. Uh, which contributes to kind of formal qualities that the Japanese, Alice Smith, and people like uh, Manet and Whistler um, would, would have. Well, that and, and the illustrations you included, I think one of them is the swamps. The swamp scene, yes. The swamp scene. Yes. That, that I, it, it's, it's just that most of us are, are more familiar with her works, particularly the ones she did for the Low Country. The Carolina Rice Plantations. Carolina Rice right. Plantations. Sort of like Elizabeth O'Neill Verner, you think of the more popular? Well, the Carolina Rice Plantation series, basically uh, a lot of them were illustrations. Mm -hmm. She is trying to illustrate a way of life that she thought was disappearing. So she includes figures, and there are narratives, there's stories there. And frankly, Walter, I don't think that's her best work. She's much more comfortable when she's rendering the swamps, when, you know, the wonderful scenes of the herons flying across the rice fields and uh, and moonlit scenes. I mean, that's really her forte. She was very prolific, was she not? She was, yes. I've, I've seen in private collections, I've seen a number of her things which really are more like the swamp scene than, mm -hmm. the, than they are of the rice plantations. 
Right. And and she was not only prolific, she had a long career. And so over that, you know, there's a good variety of of the work she produced. So Well, I never ask you who's your favorite. I'm just gonna tell you who I just found fascinating. Okay, good. I'd like to hear it. Clara Mentor Weaver Parrish <laughs> from Selma, Alabama. Yes. Here she is, born the year the Civil War starts. Uh, her family somehow came through the war with, with Bunny, built, the family place was called the castle. It looks like what Scarlett and Rhett <laughs> built. Yes. <laughs> uh, in Selma, Alabama in 1868, in the aesthetic movement style. I mean, this, and then they l- let their daughter go off to New York mm-hmm. to study. I think that's the most amazing part. Uh, because young Southern women uh, often needed to be accompanied um, by a sister or a mother or a, an older woman. Um, but but Clara Weaver Parish is, is quite special. And she actually, in, in terms of most of her output, is better associated with the aesthetic movement. Uh, and you think of her, I think of her uh, associated with Louis Comfort Tiffany and stained glass design, and that's not impressionistic. That was part of the rest of the story I was going to bring out is she is working at the Art Students League in New York, studying with Chase, and then she she gets married. She marries somebody she grew up in her hometown, a little bit older. Uh, Mr. Parrish, he was very wealthy, made his money in finance, Mm -hmm. just like they do today, which, of course, enabled her to to do her art. But she, she did end up with Tiffany and... Some of her work is in Selma. There's mm-hmm. a little more at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Selma. Stain, stained glass windows. Yes, stained yes. glass window. But the most, I think, the, the seven windows in St. Michael's in New York by Tiffany. And she did the design, is that? Yes, that's impressive. It's not just the design, but this young woman who grew up in Selma, Alabama, ends up 30 years later designing the windows in this magnificent Episcopal church and for Lewis Comfort Tiffany. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just can't make that up. No, we didn't. I know, I know you didn't. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've got friends in Selma, and I doubt that they would know this Probably stuff. not. Now you need to go tell them. Oh. And she's represented in this book and in the exhibition by a very small uh, oil on panel that it more than likely would have been painted on plein air, um, in the out of doors, and the panel is the giveaway because she could have just taken it out into the garden and painted it. It's very loose, very um, almost uh, verges on abstraction, um, very fresh. I think what is interesting about the Southern Impressionists is the significant number of them are women. Yes, 12, in fact, and, and isn't that nice and well, exciting? Well, you wonder how, again, their parents let them study in Chicago, in New York, or Paris, these are not sheltered southern magnolias. No, and but I'll give you one, an example of one that was and an example of one that wasn't. Um, okay. Kate Freeman Clark, who I mentioned earlier, from Holly Springs. Her father died early in her life, and uh, her mother became very much um, a, a dominant force. Uh, when Kate Freeman Clark exhibited some interest in art. Her mother decided to facilitate that, and so they moved to New York, the two of them. The young girl went to a finishing school and then enrolled to the Art Students League, where she became um, a beloved student of William Merritt Chase. And she spent six of those summers out at Shinnecock with her mother. And apparently her mother would walk her, like from wherever they were living, to the school. Um, she was not, Kate Freeman Clark was not allowed to walk on the streets of New York unescorted. She did well in terms of her exhibition records. She exhibited under the name Freeman Clark, and there's a little irony in my mind because she was hardly a free man. She wasn't even a free woman, and her mother would not allow her to sell any of her paintings, considering it was unladylike. So that is the example of the very sheltered Southern girl, woman, artist. Oh, uh, oh, before we move on, but what if she couldn't sell them, where are her works? Uh, that's what I was about to tell you. So in um, 1916, Chase dies, her mentor, sort of a father figure potentially. Uh, shortly afterwards, her grandmother dies. Her grandmother had come to live with them in New York, and her mother dies. 
And so by about 1920, Clark has lost all of her anchors, and she returns to Holly Springs, never to paint again. She left a lot of paintings uh, in a warehouse in New York. Eventually, they made their way to Holly Springs, and there is uh, a museum that she established in her will that's there. And so they have the mother load, and a few of the paintings have gotten out, but not many. Okay. Again, that's a fascinating story. Isn't it? Yes. And so, all right, she was very properly reared. Yes, protected. Protected. Okay. At the other end of the spectrum, you have Willie Betty Newman. And I want to point out that Betty is her maiden name, not like uh, her second girl's name. She's not, yes, she's not double named. No. She married um, at 17 to a Mr. Newman and had a, a son shortly thereafter. And when the son was about one or two years old, she decided that she really wanted to be an artist. So she went to the Cincinnati Art Academy. Where where was she going there from? From Covington, Kentucky, I think. I think. Um, Not so, you know, fairly close at hand. But she became a dedicated art student for four years. The Cincinnati Art Academy was very well thought of at that time and, and still is. She got a scholarship uh, to go to France. So she went to France and painted there for about, you know, period of, for almost a decade. So, so she abandoned her husband, abandoned her son, went abroad. So the other end of the story. And again, her works, did they, she was painting in France. Did they stay there? Did she... Some of them are there. She brought a lot back. The paintings that she did in France tended to be sort of genre paintings. Uh, Some of them did appear at the Salon. So there was a kind of conventional French um, kind of painting peasant women kind of approach. Almost a Malay kind of? Yes, almost a Malay in a broad sense. Um, But she also would, in the summertime, go to Brittany, and paint some landscapes kind of informally. And the painting that's included here is of French poplars. So we think of poplars as a, a motif that Claude Monet painted. So that's very much uh, in the manner of, of Impressionism. And speaking of Claude Monet, I want to go back to Blondel Malone. She was described by contemporaries as something of a feisty redhead. Apparently, she was rather short something like five foot two or something. And she had the, um, I don't know, the wherewithal to start a correspondence with Mary Cassatt. And she also wrote Claude Monet and asked if he would see her and look at her paintings. And at that time, he was living at Giverny. He'd moved out there in the 1880s uh, outside of Paris, where he Um, built his beautiful water lily gardens and could retreat from the maddening crowd. And he typically disdained American artists, and several of them had sort of come to Giverny and sort of painted in his shadow, but he would have nothing to do with them. Well, lo and behold, he was perfectly happy to meet with Blondel Malone. Maybe he liked her name, like so many of us do, and they spent some time together. Uh, and he critiqued her paintings and gave her the following advice. Um, don't listen to others. Don't let the others influence you. Be your own person. And so. she actually painted in his garden, did she? There's some kind of myth to that effect, oh, okay. um, but certainly garden paintings were her uh, forte, and um, she became known as the Garden Artist of America. Uh, and she painted in a, a Aiken uh, was one of her centers of She was based here in Columbia. Well, her family was from here, Mm -hmm. and she had to keep returning. She was an only child, and they were kind of needy, and, you know, she would kind of find ways to disengage from the family, Um, but she would keep coming back. Well, there are several wonderful photographs of her and her salon in the Carolinian Library. Uh, Great. Not of her art, but but of, of her. Of her. What fun. So, again, I just keep thinking of Southern women in the post-Civil War era, and even the one who was chaperoned, the fact that these women were going into art, I mean, that was just 
Right. But we're really looking at the first two decades of the 20th century. Okay. So we're, it's, a, it's not really post-Civil War. We've, yeah, we've yeah, yeah, yeah. jumped across the 1900 barrier. Yeah, yeah. But, you, but you've got to remember, socially, white middle class and upper middle class, it may have been the 20th century, but they certainly were still, <laughs> no, their, their thought patterns were I know, not, I know. But I, I wanted to get the dates kind okay, of in the okay, right place. Okay. In fact, you know, some people would argue that the, the world of South Carolina that ended up coming together after the after Tillman and the Hampton feuds by World War One, that was a that was a world that existed until the nineteen sixties. <laughs> so anyway, women's colleges and that doesn't mm-hmm. really play into this that much. But I keep thinking about Sophie Newcomb. Yes, very important. New Orleans, where uh, young women were required to take art. Sophie Newcomb is represented in this uh, book and exhibition by Ellsworth Woodward, who was the founder of the whole Sophie Newcomb program. He came from Massachusetts and uh, settled in New Orleans and really became a tremendous force for art in New Orleans, but also for women's education. And of course, Sophie Newcomb, the premise there was to to train artists in the practical arts uh, so that pottery, bookbinding, jewelry, textile design, those were the real strengths and thrusts of Sophie Newcomb so that women could go out there and support themselves. Martha, we need to pause for a moment okay. and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Martha Severins about a publication that she's involved with from the Johnson Collection, Scenic Impressions, Southern Interpretations from the Johnson Collection. We've talked about these young women studying in Cincinnati and Chicago and New York. Were there art schools? You mentioned the Telfair Museum in Savannah. Were there other art groupings in the South where young men and women could go? They were few and far between. Uh, I mentioned the Telfair in connection with the Savannah Art Association, uh, which was a membership kind of organization that did bring artists from off, uh, New York in particular, um, to come and uh, give you know short workshops or short courses. Same phenomena in Charleston uh, with the Carolina Art Association which intended to invite artists from the Woodstock community. And Alfred Huddy, that's one of the reasons why he came to Charleston. So those are the two schools that come to, or two entities. They weren't really formal schools, Mm -hmm. but they were offering educational programs. There were no real art schools with four-year curriculum like Cincinnati or the Art Students League or the Art Institute of Chicago School. Okay. Well, so I guess that's why we go back to the Sahara of the Beaux-Arts. Alas. Alas. But, you know, it's it's interesting because I think when you mentioned the Savannah Art Association bringing in artists in the 1920s, this is the same time that the South Carolina Poetry Society mm-hmm. was created mm-hmm. and was bringing in world-renowned poets to Charleston. Mm-hmm. And it was considered one of the major centers of American poetry in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Well, there's an opening up that I I think is happening at that period, and then looking, you know, outwards, uh, and then it also kind of bears fruit locally, um, so that it, there is a kind of trickle down and a fueling of local talent. You mentioned that you have spoken about this exhibit. Where in the past has this particular scenic impressions been exhibited? It was inaugurated uh, at Memphis uh, at the Dixon Gallery, which was a lovely facility that had been recently kind of renovated and freshened up. And there it was a nice uh, counterpoint to their own collection of French Impressionist paintings. So the, the community there was already very much um, aware of Impressionism. And when I lectured, I would illustrate items from their collection and juxtapose them with the scenic impressions. It has gone on to the Morris Museum in Augusta, and it is scheduled to go to the McKissick Museum in 2017, in the summer of 2017, uh, followed by a venue at the Telfair Academy. So it's traveling with some gaps in between uh, around the South. Well, does the Morris, and that's in Augusta, so yes. d- does that have a collection of impressionists that you can play off 
Not in the same way. The Morris is dedicated to American art and uh, with a Southern thrust. So it's more an, an overlap phenomena. So some of the artists such as Anthony Timi, Alfred Huddy, uh, Helen Turner, Catherine Wiley, um, they are represented in their permanent galleries. Okay. How did the folks in Memphis, which had this wonderful collection of French Impressionists, how did they react to this, this new idea of American Impressionism? They seemed to welcome it. They seemed, I, th I think one of the reasons why uh, it went over so well is that because of the renovation of the museum there, it had been closed. And so they were just so glad to get back into their museum and to see these beautiful paintings. And they are beautiful paintings. And the book is also beautiful. But I want to point out that there's a lot of really solid factual information in this book. My co-author, Buck Pennington, is a real detail researcher and, in, and set a standard for me in terms of those biographies that, that for some of the artists that had never been written. So um, I think it's an, an important contribution to scholarship. I'm, I don't want to correct you, Martha, because mm -hmm. since you did work with Encyclopedia, I don't think anybody can teach you how to write <laughs> an entry, particularly <laughs> with art. Let's talk a little bit about you now. I know you're a consultant. Any projects that you're working on? Well, I'm working uh, yet again and continuing to work with the, the Johnson Collection, and this is sort of an outgrowth or an evolution of the scenic impressions. We're doing a project on the women, women artists of the South, and um, I'm the project manager trying to keep the, the ball moving along. Uh, this is going to be an exhibition again and a, a book, and the exhibition will circulate around the South. Uh, the book is going to be a little bit different format. We have sought scholars with particular expertise. We've lined up uh, three so far, and um, one, for instance, Karen Claxman, uh, has written, uh, actually her master's thesis for the University of South Carolina was on the Southern States Art League. So she's going to look at women in the Southern States Art League because that was a very important organization for fostering women and Southern art in general. And Ellsworth Woodward, who I mentioned earlier, was very much active um, in that league as well. Another scholar, Deborah Pollack, uh, who's written a very interesting book on the visual arts and the uh, evolution of the New South. I would imagine you probably have heard of it. Um, and she's looking at women's clubs and expositions as a way for women to get visibility, uh, exhibition venues, to build their credentials. And both the women's clubs and the expositions did a great deal of that. Yes. In, in fact, there are a number of studies of women's clubs that begin in the South in the 1880s and are really flourishing by the time you get to the early 20th century. I have just looked at a few of, mm -hmm. of local ones, and they start off as being literary yes. groups, but then very quickly, all of a sudden, someone will be talking about American artists. Mm -hmm. It's all part of the changing world, particularly in terms of education right. and women. Right. Uh, so... And you say there was a third person. And the third, the third person is Evie Torono, who teaches at Randolph-Macon, and she's going to address uh, women and the women artists in the suffrage movement. There are a couple of very strong Virginia women. Adele Clark was one of them uh, who um, she's going to concentrate on, but also expand. Well, now, so theme. when you say women artists, it sounds like this is really going to be late 19th century forward, yet you're not going back to the 17th no. century. No, and it's really going to be more like 1900 to 1960. Okay. Um, and I should also mention that the Johnson Collection um, has a curator as of last August, August of 2015, Erin Corrales-Diaz, and she is contributing an essay on uh, gender and race. And uh, my role is to pick up all the themes that other people aren't aren't addressing, which will be lots of fun. <laughs> well, <laughs> since you are the authority on art in South Carolina, <laughs> yes, you are. Don't don't roll your eyes, Martha. You are. I look forward to that as well. Um, but let's let's get back to the scenic impressions. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that Clara Miller Weaver Parish was was my favorite. Somebody picks up the book. What kind of pleasant surprises are they going to discover? Well, I think I'd like to mention an artist um, that 
kind of was added in at the last minute, and I was very pleased that this happened, and, and that's James Herring, uh, who was a real force for um, art education among African-American students. And he uh, was also an artist. Uh, there's a very small beach scene, uh, which I find intriguing, because in looking at it, you wouldn't know who painted it. Uh, man, woman, black, white, green. It's, you know, it's, it's just a rather fresh plein air study. But Herring was a, a real force in Washington, D.C. at Howard University, helped to establish the art department there. He also founded a gallery there um, on campus for the students and brought in uh, artists. And he also had a commercial gallery uh, in Washington, D.C., where he exhibited African-American and white artists side by side. So that's kind of a remarkable little piece of history that you might not expect. In terms of the African-American community in Washington, D.C., expatriate South Carolinians and Southerners played a, a, a major role. Gene Toomer, the, mm-hmm. the yes. black novelist, who was, unbeknownst to them, the first African-American to be a member of the Poetry Society of South Carolina (laughs) was part of that group. But again, it was centered around Howard Mm -hmm. and some of the early faculty. All of those, they were South Carolinians. Mm -hmm. In my research, that would be the interesting thing is they escaped South Carolina so they could express themselves. Right. But they were always, somehow saying they were from South Carolina gave them a cachet. Mm -hmm. No, they talk about it. And that's nice. That's wonderful. That we are proud to be a South Carol- mm-hmm. you know, from South Carolina. And it's, it's an interesting contradiction in terms. They fled, but there was something that they put, they made that check. Mm-hmm. I'm from South Carolina. Mm-hmm. All right. What are the surprises? I have, um, on a personal level, uh, since my retirement, I have become an avid hiker. Okay, so I I dedicate Thursdays to uh, a hiking group and sometimes Sundays. And so I've been discovering um, the mountains of North Carolina, South Carolina. And one artist, Rudolf Ingole, based in Chicago, uh, came down to the Smoky Mountains and just became totally enamored uh, with them. In terms of his style, I would place him more in the post-impressionistic vein, but he became such an accomplished and recognized painter of the western North Carolina, the Smoky Mountains, that he became known as the painter of the Smokies, and he is credited with uh, helping to establish uh, the great national, the, the great Smokies National Park in 1934. And in the book, there are two paintings. Uh, One is this wonderful autumnal scene with these yellow leaves. It's actually illustrates, it's illustrating in my essay. And there is a figure in the middle, uh, a tall white figure visiting a, a family in a cabin. And we've identified that figure as Horace Kephart, who wrote uh, Our Southern Highlanders, which is also credited for the movement that made the Smoky Mountains a, a national park. Well, that's the two, the two paintings are very different. They are. Um, but they also have a certain flatness. In other words, if you look at this one uh, with, with the Horace Kephart figure, uh, the perspective is closed off. You're not allowed to to visually look into the distance. There is no vista here. So it's a very much uh, aware of its picture plane. Um, and that bright yellow is, kind of pulls the, the image forward, too. So that's why I call it kind of after-impressionism, post-impressionistic. Where, whereas the mountain scene... Is a little more of a vista and softer colors. Mm-hmm. And there's another artist from Chicago, Lawrence Masonovich, who came and painted mountains around Tryon, North Carolina. And um, he had an interesting story, a personal life story. He moved from Chicago over to Westport, Connecticut, again, which is an area where the American Impressionists were kind of colonizing. He did very well. Um, New York galleries showed his work. Uh, his wife was very much his business manager and kind of kept him painting. Well, in about 1923, he just got 
tired of this routine and probably tired of his wife. And so he left Connecticut and settled in Tryon, North Carolina, and uh, started a whole other kind of identity and career, and really has painted some really lovely vistas uh, of uh, the area around Tryon. Director of the Johnson Collection, David Henderson, chose that particular illustration for uh, his essay. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, But Scenic Impressions, (laughs) the frontispiece, (laughs) is Alice Ravenel, U.G. Smith. And you like that, don't you? Yes, yes I do. Yes, so I'm, do I. Actually, actually, I suggested that because, um, and, and in design-wise, it didn't work out because it's a very tall and narrow painting. And so what you see is the frontispiece is actually a detail. And if you flip through to the end of my essay, you'll see the full picture, and you'll see how very vertical it is, a beautiful painting and very typical of her technique. And this is now in the Johnson Collection? Yes. Okay. Fabulous. Now, if someone wanted to go to Spartanburg, how does one have access to the Johnson Collection? You make an appointment. Many of uh, the items in their collection are in the offices of Johnson Development Company. They also, the, uh, there is something called the Johnson, the TJC Gallery on um, Main Street in Spartanburg. And they do uh, smallish exhibitions of from the collection that are organized by interns from either Converse or Wofford College. And this is part of the Johnson Collection's dedication to the educational aspects of their collection. Well, I know that Georgetown Johnson and Susu Johnson have both been very heavily involved with both Wofford and, and, yes. and Converse and, and education of young men and women. Yes. So I think we've got about five minutes or so. Or What are the topics would you like to talk about uh, with this book? Well, I think, I think we really haven't defined what scenic impressions is. Um, it's okay. an invented phrase, obviously, playing on impressionism, but not saying this is Impressionism. In terms of the subjects, um, the paintings are largely landscapes. That's the emphasis. But there are a number of paintings, and you've just opened the page to one, um, which show figures in the out of doors um, in a kind of scenic environment. Uh, The one you've chosen perhaps is the least scenic of that type by William de Leftwich Dodge, a rather muscular woman at a clothesline, and um, she is just taking the uh, laundry down. And uh, when you see the painting in the gallery, she's very imposing. She's large, she has large hands, and she's very muscular. And I attribute this to the fact that uh, William de Leftwith Dodge was largely a mural painter, a very successful one. For instance, his murals are in the Library of Congress. Uh, on the great domes up there. And so when you paint at that distance and at that scale, you tend to render figures that are larger than life. And so that's exactly um, what we have here. There are two other paintings of women in the out of doors, um, both of them painted by women artists. I think that's a kind of sub-theme. They're painting their friends. Uh, I think they're friends, not sisters or anything. And one is by Catherine Wiley, uh, a very genteel uh, woman with a parasol. The other by Helen Turner, a woman playing guitar. So they're they're kind of contemplative, pretty pretty paintings, pretty paintings. Is there anything in the collection that looks like Renoir's Luncheon of the Boating Party? Well, this la- one of the last paintings that I mentioned, the Lady in the Parasol. If you took one of the figures out of the voting party painting, it would, I think, hold up as a nice comparison to the Catherine Wiley lady with a parasol. But the voting party is a group picture, mm-hmm. what, 10, 12 figures. And no, there's nothing quite like that in the Johnson collection. Well, Martha Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off today? Well, it's uh, a beautiful book, a beautiful exhibition. I hope people will get to see either or both. Um, and the Johnson Collection has a wonderful website, and so they can look at the paintings uh, there as well. We will link that website Great. to our website. 
Great. All right. Martha Severins, consultant to the Johnson Collection in Spartanburg. Thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I certainly did. I learned a lot from the book, Scenic Impressions, and always a conversation with Martha Severins. You tap into all sorts of aspects of not just American art, but coming down more locally to Southern and particularly South Carolina art. It's an interesting story, and particularly those involving Southern women in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.